Back in fifth grade, I remember doing a book report for Mrs. Lee's class. It was, I think, one of the first times I remember having to stand in front of the class and do a book report. And the book I had read was a book called Snow Treasure, which was a story about these little kids in Norway who would smuggle in gold past the Nazis. And I remember giving the book report, and I was really excited. And I had all the great stories of the things that went on, and I, I was up there, and I sat down, and Mrs. Lee said, well, that was great, but you were supposed to summarize the book, not recite the entire book. <laughs> I was just excited. There were so many great stories, and, and so much to tell, and didn't realize that the idea of a book report was to kind of summarize it. And we can go kind of to extremes with that when we're trying to summarize a long story or a long passage. We can tell every single detail, or we can try and maybe boil it down. So I'm going to give you a few examples of maybe a book in one sentence and see if you can guess it. So this is the first one. Ghosts haunt a rich man until he feels bad about himself. A Christmas carol, right? Scrooge, okay, all right. All right, here we go. Man seeks a whale that ate his leg, finds it, and dies. Moby Dick, right? All right. All right. A teenager who attends a boarding school where someone tries to kill him every year. Harry Potter, Harry Potter right? <laughs> so, the, you know, it's like the idea is like, oh, we can boil it down to a sentence. And the reason I was thinking about this is because we just started as a congregation, something Bonnie alluded to was an experience called Bible, the Bible experience or immerse the reading Bible. And the idea is we'll be reading through the New Testament over the course of the next, started this last Sunday, so in seven more weeks we'll have finished the New Testament. So if you're new with us, if you're relatively new, there's some copies on the back, and we'll be talking about this, and the idea is to read through, and the immerse is a little bit different, and the, the main reason, it's all the same words of the Bible, but it's laid out in a slightly different format, takes out the chapters and verses, and encourages you to read it as a story, and so... If you started last Sunday and began the reading program and followed that along, during the course of this week, you would have read the entire Gospel of Luke, the entire story of written. And I was trying to think about a one-sentence summary for that. You know, can we take the Gospel of Luke and summarize that in one sentence? And one-sentence summaries work, but part of the challenge is Luke isn't really one book because Luke belongs with the book of Acts. And really, they were meant to go together as two things. Acts isn't really a sequel. It's really one book, but had to be divided up because of scrolls and such. And so there's this story. But I was thinking about, could I do it in one sentence? And what I came up with was this. It says, in Messiah Jesus, God fulfills his plan to bring salvation in all its fullness to all people and commissions his people to live this new kingdom life in an ever-widening circle. That's a pretty big sentence. But but basically that in Messiah Jesus, God fulfills his plan to bring salvation, we could say. That's kind of the, the summary of that. But we want to do more than just summarize it. What I'd like to do today is look at the gospel of Luke, this story about the life of Jesus, as Luke tells it. And try and think about what's going on and what he's saying about God and what he's saying to us. He didn't write it originally to us. It's not to us, but it is for us. And so the gospel of Luke begins, and Luke talks about addressing someone named Theophilus. We don't have any idea who Theophilus is. But the idea is he's writing to someone, and he's trying to explain what's going on, and scholars are trying to wrap their head around, what was Luke's purpose for writing? And it seems like he's writing to try and encourage the church, to encourage the people there to think about who God is and who he's calling them to be. And if you were to read through that and go through, and what I would encourage you to do as you're reading 
Somebody asked me about this. It's perfectly okay to write in your books, okay? Some people I know have an aversion to writing in your books, and if you have an aversion to writing in your books, and I understand that, it's okay. But if you want to write, scribble, underline things, do whatever, that's okay too. And one of the things we can notice as we read and the idea behind the immersed experience when we read big sections at a time, oftentimes we've been trained to maybe read one chapter or one little section or maybe just a verse. But as we read big sections, we start to read and notice connections, something that happens at the beginning and happens at the end or, or words that repeat. And so one of the things that I want to pay attention to are the words I noticed and a lot of scholars that I read did too, is this central idea of salvation. And it's a big theme. We can't say everything we can do, but we want to see and learn how we can read and see this theme. And so part of it is, as we're looking at this today, is to think about how we read, but what we're seeing. And so I picked this one is why this one? And one thing we can do is, like I said, pay attention to repetitions and patterns. And how do we notice patterns and repetitions? By rereading. You oftentimes don't see a reading the first time you go through it, but you read a big section and then you go back and you say, wait a minute, I noticed that word, or I noticed that phrase, or I noticed that thing, and we see it again and again. And so today what we're going to do is notice some of those patterns and try and put them together in this idea of salvation. I'm going to put a lot of the scriptures up on the, the screen here as I reference them. They'll have the verse reference, and that's one of the tricky things with the immerse. If you're reading it along, there aren't chapter and verse numbers. So when you're talking with someone and you're saying, where's that found? You kind of have to go, well, it's on page 42 and it's kind of near the bottom in the second paragraph, but it's a more natural way because we get to do it. But the verses and chapters help us to find where those things are. So I want to start with this is the importance of the city of Jerusalem for Luke's story. And so what was the city of Jerusalem? The city of Jerusalem was the city that God had given his people to be their central place. He'd given it to King David a thousand years before to rule and reign. But Jerusalem was also where the temple was. The temple was the central site of the Jewish religion, the central site where they came to worship and they would come there annually for different feasts and festivals. And so everything revolved around Jerusalem. And as you read through and as Luke tells the story, the story begins and ends in Jerusalem at least in the Gospel of Luke. So it begins in, so in chapter 1, verse 9, very near the beginning, it says, As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen, this is talking about a man named Zechariah, by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So the sanctuary is the temple. And so it begins with this story of a man named Zechariah who's in Jerusalem and he goes in the temple. And he has this whole experience where he encounters an angel and he doesn't believe what the angel is going to say. And so the angel says, well, you're not going to be able to talk until your baby's born. And so there's this experience that happened. Then we have Jesus born, who's not the baby that he was talking to Zechariah about, but again, long story. See, this is why I have trouble with these things. This was my trouble in fifth grade with Mrs. Lee. I want to tell all the stories. So we're skipping some stories here, but Zechariah has a son named John who's going to announce the birth of Jesus. And so we get to the birth of Jesus. And after Jesus is born... We have the story that Bonnie read for it a little bit earlier, and he's taken to Jerusalem, and it says this. It says, then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of his child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And so we see this story again where Jesus has left Jerusalem, but now he's coming back. And the story, Luke is saying, pay attention. There's something about Jerusalem. 
And it comes up again multiple times in the story. Later on, as Jesus has grown up and he's getting into his ministry, it says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He turned his face. In other words, at some point now, notice this is chapter 9. Luke is 24 chapters long. So this is kind of early on in the story, really, that Jesus looks and he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem. The story begins in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves and now comes back and Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. There's a long, wandering series of stories and parables and miracles that all go on and eventually Jesus returns to Jerusalem. Well, why was Jesus wanting to go to Jerusalem? What was going to happen in Jerusalem? What did Jesus need to do in Jerusalem? Die. That's why he was headed to Jerusalem. And that's exactly, that was his plan. His intent was to do this. And so the story ends there. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's crucified, buried. God raises him from the dead on the third day. And then after Jesus is resurrected, he comes and he talks to his disciples and he says, and now I will send the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus talking, just as my father promised. But stay here in the city that is in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. And so here we are. And so they're setting this big story of saying all this stuff is happening around Jerusalem. All these different things, this center of life that's going on. And even the word Jerusalem sometimes is a way to refer to Israel as a whole. So this is the story of Anna that we read. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And so what's happening? There's this big story going on. And so why is Luke so concerned with Jerusalem? And so that's one of the things you ask as you're reading. You say, he keeps talking about Jerusalem. Story starts in Jerusalem. Then Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem. He dies in Jerusalem. He tells his followers to stay in Jerusalem because something's significant. Because Jerusalem is the center of this story. And so Luke is saying, what's going on with Jesus here is connected to a bigger story. And so going back to the beginning, we're kind of jumping around in the story, but that's what we do when we connect these pieces. And so this is again back to this priest, Zechariah, the one who went in the temple. It says, when he makes this Proclamation, he says, for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. And then later on, at the end of the book, now back to chapter 24, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, what Luke is doing is saying, this story I'm telling about Jesus doesn't happen in a vacuum. This story about Jesus isn't some random thing, but it's connected to all the rest of the stories the people of God had heard, what we call the Old Testament. That there were all these promises for thousands of years. God had made promises. He had talked about what he was going to do. He had promised a Messiah, a Meshua in, in Hebrew, in Greek, a Christos or a Christ, a Savior. He had promised someone to come and to make a difference. And what Luke is saying is, now that's all happening. Here in Jerusalem, at the center of life, something great is happening. All these hopes and these expectations, and we saw that in Simeon and Anna, right? Simeon was sitting there and it said they had both been waiting for something. Anna, 84 years old, she'd been married, had her husband for seven years, so we can guess she had been there a long time. 60, 70 years in the temple, waiting, waiting for what? Waiting for God to send the Messiah 
the Christ, the rescuer. And so there's this hope, this expectation that's going. And so these early parts of the Bible set up this, the early parts of the book of Luke set up these expectations that are going on. And that God's plan is at work. But the plan doesn't end with the end of that little story with Simeon and Anna. It goes all through, as Jesus points out, like what he's doing is part of a plan. It's part of something bigger. So in chapter 9, kind of around that same time, he talks about going to Jerusalem. Jesus, talking about himself, says, The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He, he, must be, he will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. I want you to pay attention to, like, say, the Son of Man must suffer. Some translations say it is necessary. In other words, this is part of the plan. Jesus dying wasn't an accident. Jesus dying wasn't like, well, I had a good plan, but then things messed up and the Romans and I, I made the religious leaders mad and so they ended up killing Jesus and all didn't work out. That was the plan from the beginning. That was this plan going back. And so Luke is tying all these things together which as we read this big story, we're in Jerusalem. Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. He dies in Jerusalem. This is all connected to God's big plan. But what's the plan? What's the plan for? The plan is for salvation. To save people. So when Jesus is born, there's an angel comes and makes an announcement and says this, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of David. And so there's this language. So Messiah again. So the word Messiah is the Hebrew word Meshua, which in Greek is Christos or Christ, which we often Jesus Christ, but really Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's the Savior. And so this is what the angel's getting at. And so he's saying, this is what's going on. Now back to what we read earlier. Simeon says, he sees Mary and Joseph and he sees the baby and he praises God. He says, I have seen your salvation. My question for you, what did Simeon see? He saw salvation, but, what, but physically, what did he see? A baby, right? In other words, the baby, in other words, Jesus is the salvation. So all this plan for God to send a Messiah, to send a Christ, to send a rescuer, to send salvation. Simeon says at that moment, I have seen your salvation. In other words, salvation, God's salvation is there in Jesus. Jesus is salvation. And so he's getting at this point. And so we say, okay, so God's plan is salvation. But what does salvation look like? We, salvation is another churchy word, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of one of those, we don't use salvation, my guess, a whole lot. We know, there's a salvation army, but that's connected to the church, right? Other than that, my guess is, since January 1st, the beginning of the year, how many of you have used the word salvation outside of church? I mean, it's not one of those things we talk about. And so we wrap it up and we make it a churchy word. We make it Christianese. We make it this thing that's like, oh, it's this spiritual thing. But if we read what the story that Luke tells, salvation is much bigger than a churchy word. 
it's a pervasive coordinating theme. And so uh, Joel Green, who's a, one of the leading scholars on the Gospel of Luke, says it this way, and it's a longish quote. He says this, he says, salvation is neither ethereal or entirely future. In other words, it's not just a spiritual thing. It's not something nebulous, and it's not just something in the future, but embraces life in the present, restoring the integrity of human life, revitalizing human communities, setting the cosmos in order, and commissioning the community of God's people to put God's grace into practice among themselves and toward ever-widening circles of others. He concludes by saying, salvation embraces the totality of embodied life, including its social, economic, and political concerns. In other words, salvation is about all of life. So Jesus comes to restore all of life. How many of us have stuff that's not right in our lives? How many of us look around the world and see there are things that aren't right? Whether it's in justice systems, whether it's in poverty, whether it's in homelessness, all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things wrong with the world. And what Joel Green is saying, and I think drawing from what Luke is saying, is that's what Jesus came to set right. Jesus didn't come simply to deal with our soul and some salvation in the future, but Jesus came to deal with life all in the present. And so one of the things he came to deal with was breaking down barriers. Barriers are all a part of human life, aren't they? Again, going back to school, we set up barriers and, and little groups Almost from the time we're little. I mean, nobody teaches kids to sit in the lunchroom and make little groups and exclude other people, do they? Does it happen? Absolutely. It seems to be this human thing where we want to make our group and we want to have an in-group and then there's an out-group because maybe it makes us feel better. Maybe it's a way to lift ourselves up. But we tend to make this, create these ideas that there's an in-group and an out-group. Well, it's not exclusive to it doesn't end when people graduate from school. It continues in all of life, and our, much of our world is structured in that way where there are in-groups and out-groups, and we have a tendency to, to create and foster and to gather in one group and then exclude other groups. And the same was true in the time of Jesus. That there were the religious leaders would gather and they saw themselves as the one who were faithfully following God, which is absolutely true. The Pharisees, which we paint as the terrible bad guys, they were faithful followers of Jesus. In fact, one, one scholar named Scott McKnight says, if we were to try and label the Pharisees in the modern day, they would be the evangelicals. They're us. They're the ones who faithfully follow and believe the word of God and want to do the best thing. But one of the things they did and they tended to do was kind of exclude and look down on others. Well, Jesus comes along, and if you read the Gospel of Luke, the story of Luke, is one of the things you notice is Jesus seems like he's eating all the time. He's going to this party and to that party. I'm like, man, I want to hang out with Jesus. He's always, a, but the problem is he's always having dinner with the wrong people. Chapter 7 tells this story where he's invited by a Pharisee and he's having dinner with people. And then this woman, a notorious sinner, Somebody who's well-known for a certain, comes in and she starts anointing his feet and, and crying, kissing him and stuff. And, and Jesus welcomes her to the table. Chapter 15, he's gathered around with a group of the outcasts and sinners and the Pharisees and the religious leaders come to him and say, why are you eating with these people? 
Can you hear that kind of language? Well, why would you dine with these kind of people? If you're going to be a holy person, if you're going to be a righteous person, why would you hang out with those kind of people? Fast forward to 2024. I'm thinking of Christians. Do we ever say that kind of thing? Well, if you were a good Christian, you certainly wouldn't be hanging out with those people. You wouldn't be attending that sort of event. And this is what Jesus does is he goes and he gathers with these people because he's wanting to tell them that God's plan for salvation includes them. That there's not an in-group and an out-group, but it's a welcome to all. He's extending the invitation. Now, they need to receive the invitation. We'll get to that in a moment. They need to receive the invitation, but he begins by extending the invitation. Jesus doesn't start simply with, well, you're the outsiders, you're the sinners, you're the outcasts. He goes and he meets with a man named Zacchaeus, which most of us know is just as a little short guy. But he was a tax collector. Nobody liked tax collectors. Nobody liked tax collectors today. <laughs> but it was even worse back then because the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes for the Roman government. So not only it was a foreign government. So imagine the tax collector coming to your house and they're collecting taxes for Canada or some other occupying country, nation that's here with us. And so here's this story of what's going on. And, and what does Jesus do? He meets Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, let's go to dinner. In fact, I'm going to your house. And at the end of the story, he says, to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house because Zacchaeus has turned his life around. And so there's this part of this. But Jesus spends so much of his time eating and celebrating and being around the wrong people, at least according to everybody else. And he's painting this picture and saying, salvation is this all-inclusive, wide circle of people. Salvation is for the unlikely and the outsider. Jesus tells stories about it. He tells a story about what neighboring looks like, and he talks about a man who's a Samaritan, who's an outsider, who does what he's supposed to do. Or as Simeon says it this way, he is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory to your people Israel. So the nations is everybody else. So for the Jewish people, there was Israel, and then there were the nations, or sometimes we say the Gentiles, which just means everybody else. So... If we read this sentence, who is God for? He's a light to reveal God to the nations and Israel. So we have Israel and all the nations. Who's that? Everybody, right? It's this big, wide circle. And so part of what salvation Jesus is pointing at is this embrace of all people. It's the breaking down of social barriers. And so for us as a church, it's us to consider... How do we erect social barriers? Is it based on class? Is it based on education? Is it based on the way we dress? Is it based on the color of our skin? All these ways we tend to create social barriers to begin to think of somebody as the other. It's in subtle ways in which we use language about the other side of the tracks, the different parts of town, all sorts of ways, or the way somebody talks, or the way somebody dresses, and we begin to make them into the other. And Jesus says, no, salvation is inclusive. In other words, and those who follow me need to be like I am. We need to be willing 
to have other Christians question and say, well, why were you hanging out with that person? I can't believe you're being with that person. So that's one of the pictures of salvation. Salvation also isn't just breaking down social barriers. It includes forgiveness. So Jesus says this, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. So salvation involves breaking down of social barriers. It also involves forgiveness. And the forgiveness of sins and the change. So we have, those are just two pictures of it. Two pictures of salvation that as we read this story that he's going, but also important that Jesus makes clear that with him, because remember we said, Simeon saw the baby, he said, this is salvation. So with the coming of Jesus means it's also time for decision. That you need to make a choice. And so Jesus says it this way. He says, no, and I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. And so a number of times Jesus makes it clear that salvation is extended to all, that the barriers are broken down, but we also have a choice to make in that. That salvation is offered freely to all. It's a gift given to all, but the call is to receive that. So if we go back to my one-sentence summary, in Messiah Jesus, God fulfills his plan to bring salvation in all its fullness. And I just highlighted one of those is this breaking down of barriers. Jesus also talked about the end of honor and shame. He talked about the ways we deal with wealth. He talked about the ways we think about status and power and all these different ways. And so Jesus paints this picture of salvation, which is this all-encompassing thing. Jesus ate with people, but Jesus also did something else. He healed people. He restored their wholeness. There were lepers, people who were cast out from society. and He healed them so they could enter back into. There were the blind and the lame who were excluded from society, healed them and brought them back into society. So salvation includes that. It includes healing and goodness. And so in some sense, when we think of like a video we saw in Congo, Congo, when the Covenant Church began its partnership with World Vision about 10 years ago, so the Covenant has a unique partnership with World Vision, the um, United Nations had developed a list of the 187 countries in the world based on um, you know, ranking them by in terms of poverty and life expectancy and stuff. Anyone want to take a guess where Congo was? 187. That's not where you want to be on the list. It's now moved up because of work with like up to like 172, which still isn't good, but, but that's in part because of the work of World Vision, a Christian humanitarian organization in partnership with the Covenant, in partnership with all sorts of other churches, work of Covenant missionaries and other folks in Congo bringing salvation because salvation can also look like clean water. It can look like food. And then with that, the opportunity to share the salvation found in Jesus. But salvation is a wholeness, a restoration of life. It means children and women not having to walk miles to get clean water. It means education. It means a change where communities, where the life expectancy of a child that nearly 50% of children in, in Karawa and Gemina, some of the main areas that the covenant works in, a few years back, nearly 50% didn't make it to the age of five. Numbers down to about 30, I think 33%. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head right now. But we're making a difference. That's salvation. That's the difference that Jesus is making in the world. 
Now, ultimately, it also is the message of Jesus for forgiveness and life in him. But when we say that God fulfills his plan to bring salvation in all its fullness to all people, it's recognizing, and why is, how is that related to salvation? Because Congo, we think of like one of the poorest countries in the world, actually has some of the greatest reserves of natural resources in all the world. Most of you carry parts of Congo in your pocket. The precious minerals and ores that power our smartphones and our computers all come from Congo. And you think, well, if we have all these you know, expensive products, why don't they have more money? Because of colonialism and, and exploitation and all these things. And what salvation does is begin to right those wrongs that are going on. So in Messiah Jesus, God fulfills his plan to bring salvation in all its fullness. And so it's not simply forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. It is that, but it's so much more. Jesus brings this wholeness where he's saying, I'm welcoming the outsiders. I'm healing people. I'm changing systems. And then he commissions people to live this new kingdom life in an ever-widening circle. Because that's part of what Jesus does is he not only says, I'm doing this, but he's saying, I'm inviting you to be a part of this. So think about a couple of responses that we might have to this. It's this picture of Jesus' salvation. One is if Jesus is salvation, then the first thing is to turn to him. That we all need salvation. We all need to be rescued from our own sins, from what's gripping us and what's holding us down. So we need to trust him, we need to acknowledge him, put our faith in him, to follow him, to give him our allegiance and to say, Jesus, I can find salvation only in you. But then Jesus calls us more because that language that Jesus uses is to follow him. And if you're following somebody, you don't just say yes once, it's a continual following because Jesus doesn't stay in one place. And so Jesus says this, he says, then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. And so it's this daily following. And so this language of taking up your cross is a language of being willing to die. But it's also a language of setting aside things. It's a language of upside down values in this ever widening circle of grace. And so the invitation as we read the gospel of Luke is, it's God's plan to bring salvation in Messiah Jesus. And so the first invitation is salvation is an invitation to all. So receive that salvation and then be his followers. And next week when we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see the followers saying, we need to take this message to the world. We need to break down more and more barriers. We need to share this message. But the invitation then, if we receive that salvation, is to be his follower. To live a life that looks like Jesus. To break down the barriers. To to invert the values of life that we're taught, to think about what wealth and poverty mean, what riches are, what status and honor means, and take all those things and realize Jesus came and salvation flipped the values of the world upside down. The final thing we can do is going back to Simeon and Anna. We meet these two elderly folks, and I want to kind of continue to bring it back full circle to them. Simeon, who's been waiting, and Anna, who has been waiting to meet God's salvation, to see what God has done. 
And it says he took the child in his arms and he praised God. And then listen to this. And then Anna, it says, she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph and she began praising God. So the other thing we can do is we consider God's plan to bring salvation to Messiah Jesus is when we see it, when we see this incredible plan that God reached out in Jesus, that he broke down the barriers, that Jesus gave his life for our salvation, and he extends that salvation to all, and he invites us all into that, is to respond with praise to God. So in this week, I invite you to consider, what is God inviting you to do? Is he inviting you to give yourself to him, to begin to follow him? Or if you're already following him, what's the next step he's asking you to take in that following? What's your daily task of dying to yourself? What's your daily task of widening the circle of grace that God is in? And then what are ways that we can praise God for all his goodness that he's shown us in Jesus? Amen.